real life superpowers. In many cases, the, the bad hires that we did, in most cases, within a month or two, you already knew it. But it's very likely to say, okay, let's give that person a chance. Let's do that. And it's not not necessarily because that person is not good. Sometimes it's just not a good fit for the organization, and that person would be amazing in a different place. And lingering on that, or stalling, or trying to give another opportunity, maybe it will change. Or I really need someone now, so having someone that is thirty percent or fifty percent capacity is better than having no one. And it's never the case. Uh, everyone around sees that it it has a very negative impact on the on the company and all the culture. And in case you are blind to that, trust other people and 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 build an environment where other people can tell you, hey, why are you stalling on that? Hey everyone! In this episode, we speak with Idosa Froti, co-founder and CTO of Perimeter X, a company that provides digital threat protection for businesses and is valued at nearly a billion dollars. The company was named number 49 on Deloitte's Fast 500 ranking highlights, with an incredible almost 4,000% growth in just three years. There's a lot entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs can learn from this guy. I'll let you hear for yourself. Real life superpowers. Superpowers. Hey, Joe, welcome to Real Life Superpowers. Uh, happy to be here. Hello, Tos. What are you up to these days? Uh, for the last six and something years, running Perimeter X, uh, which is a web application security company. Founded in late 2014 with two other co-founders, Omeridus and Operationizer. And tell us a bit about the company. So the company, uh, we offer a software as a service solution or a cloud solution. Uh, to protect uh, large consumer web applications from all kind of malicious activity uh, working uh, and the, the tier that we're protecting is more in the application level from all kind of security uh, risks and other abuse uh, level did you end up launching this to scratch your own itch or how did you end up on this journey both Omri lose the uh, CEO and me come from the Somewhat similar background, uh, doing a, a lot of security work initially. Uh, so I was in uh, the intelligence corps in Israel and, and was doing cyber security for a, quite a lot, long time. And then when I left military serv- my military service, I decided to not do security and do uh, a lot of uh, web infrastructure. From building large websites uh, destination consumer websites and then uh, I joined Metacafe as a general manager managing uh, all R&D and operations to build a very large destination site with uh, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of users and heating and, and figuring out scale and, and seeing really web scale as an executive as an employee not I, I, I was not the founder there right after the army like first job was already as an executive. Yeah, yeah, I, I was in Talpiot, uh, I'm a Talpiot graduate, so then I spent quite a fair amount of years in the Army. Uh, my last roles, I was managing a few tens of, of people running quite a lot of projects, so uh, it gave me the, the right foundations to, to build a team. And I also joined Metacafe when it was not like a huge company, so uh, growing with it. 
from that, actually, I joined Cotendo, uh, which is a building infrastructure for websites. So I've seen what, what I had to build. I met the founders of Cotendo uh, as they were building the company. Uh, they, they, they wanted feedback. Uh, actually, a VC, a, a VC was asking me to do some due diligence on them. And, and we clicked. And I, I initially started as an advisor to them on, on how to build and, and knowing the customers. And later, I joined as VP of product and strategy for the company and relocated to, to the US with them, with the CEO, with Ronnie Zabi and build a very large CDN to support scalability of these kind of web applications. That company got acquired by Akamai. Omri worked at Pretendo as well, doing BizDev, relocated to the US as well. We were both there. Within Akamai, we stayed for a few years. And this is where we started seeing the need for a new approach for security uh, for web applications. All the security. So we had a good background in security, a good background in web scale and building large scale applications with all the complexity and all the mixed services and adopting all kinds of new technologies. What we saw is most web security companies were trying to basically force an enterprise security approach on web and it didn't work well. It added a lot of friction. It didn't scale. Uh, we felt that this is the wrong way to solve this problem and we're trying to figure out, can we come with a new approach to do that? Can we come with a new architecture, something that will make more sense, that will be designed for web scale? And after a few nights of brainstorming and, and trying a different approach, we came out with the architecture that is now the foundation of the Perimeter X architecture. And we felt that this is something good. We started validating it with, uh, with potential customers, friends, and, uh, and other people from the industry. And This was while you were still at your day job, right? No. So we decided we want to do something. We left Akamai. I mean, we were trying to figure out like what, what would be the direction. We felt like, okay, we have a direction. We see the need. And then uh, we left Akamai and started working on that. When you think of a direction of defense, so the myth is that some of these companies uh, use uh, hackers or other people to actually be attacked the same things to defend their points. Um, is that true on the marketing level? So I can speak for them. So we have, for instance, uh, we called it a red team. The red team is basically working. Uh, it's a security researcher or a hacker that is working within the company and trying to attack our product to simulate an attacker to help us find potential loopholes or gaps in our product that are not efficient instead of waiting for attackers to do that. The myths are more about if I'm selling you uh, insurance, I can hire a goon to go and throw a stone at your window uh, so that you will be incentivized. And this is not something that we're doing. In our world, it's also not something that we need to do. So if you look at, for instance, uh, if I'm going to sell you uh, endpoint security or a malware software, uh, I don't know when was the last time that you actually had the virus installed on your laptop, hopefully not anytime recently. So if you would want to test my product, you may run a POC, run for two weeks. It will not detect anything, but maybe you will also not infected by anything. When you're protecting large websites, they're constantly under attack. I don't need to simulate anything. So I just need to show that I can detect it and help mitigate. So in some cases, 50% or more of the visits to the websites are malicious. So it's not that something that I need to hire someone to do that because it's just out there. I just need to identify them and point the finger at them. 
on the cybersecurity side, I really understand what you're saying. By the way, publishers are really, you know, they're um, they're used in a bad way most most over. But there's not any legality around bots and what you're securing unless they sell something, of course. But that's probably a small percentile. So when you say malicious, it just means that they're not getting money or or attribution for similar web traffic. And I'm I'm trying to understand like how do you show them that it's actually not good for them? Yeah. When you're visiting a site as a human with your browser and there is an analytics beacon that is collecting information about you, uh, this, is the, this beacon is reporting on a real human. Now, obviously with analytics, uh, uh, just like with ad fraud or click fraud and, and other aspects of it, there are attackers or, and, and again, uh, attackers is a broad name. Not all of them are actually criminals. And not everything is illegal or malicious, but it's something that is not, let's say, against the use the 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 terms of use of the site or something that is hurting my business, that is exposing me to something that I don't want to. And we're helping them get visibility to that. So, for instance, if there are scanners or 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 bots that are trying to collect information, they are not necessarily hurting you, but you don't want your marketing team to to analyze them as legitimate users, and then their entire analytics is queued because then they're saying, okay, this session did not convert. They did not end up buying. Hence, my marketing campaign is wrong. And they can, from, from garbage data, you can reach garbage decisions. So we are helping these kind of companies clean up uh, the non-human traffic so that they can derive uh, more insightful conclusions and and do a better analysis um, there are still companies that rather not know uh, for different reasons sometimes you want you don't want to know for liability because what you don't know can hurt you and and uh, once you know that there is some malicious activity or fraudulent activity then you need to act on it but in most cases the advertisers are sophisticated enough as well and the advertisers if I buy traffic from a publisher and the the clicks I get, are not converting and not acting as human, then I will stop buying this traffic or I will pay less for it. And in many cases, if I will identify that they're non-human, then I can go and ask my money back. And in that case, uh, this is even worse for me because if I'm a, a publisher and I had someone was paying me, let's say, a budget of uh, $1,000 for advertising and I had enough impression, but I put them and I spend half of this budget on, on bots that then he will later ask refund for, then I ended up uh, not using the best, my, my budget to the most efficient way. So I think there is a lot of value in it because at the end of the day, more and more advertisers are more sophisticated and they're measuring actions, real actions, and not just clicks and impressions. Uh, so the, the price ends up to that. On that side, you talked about insurance. This is great. So like we, we know because we started, so we know that you're amazing and you have a lot of experience, but you, you go to pitch right now and you, and you tell those people, you said insurance was a really good example. So when I was younger, someone told me life insurance. I'm like, no, I'm invincible. Right. So if you didn't have that problem, how do you know, like how much is it worth? It's like tangible psychologists in, in economics, right? So how much is it worth me to, to not be a percentile of something that maybe in large statistics won't happen to me? Like, how do you approach that? Most of our customers are already aware of that. Now, they might be aware of one thing, and once we're turning the service on, we're helping uh, spot 
spotlights on uh, on other sections of their application that they weren't aware are being abused, but they're usually aware of that. So their return investment is really obvious. When you're talking about something like giving you visibility into potential abuse or malicious code that may be injected into your application, uh, the extreme case of a hacker managed to uh, manipulate the JavaScript code on your site that is now stealing credit card information of users and siphoning it to a different site without you knowing is something that hopefully you don't have every day. But in that case, the risk of such a thing happening and the lack of visibility that you have to that and a potential fine of hundreds of millions of dollars, like British Airways were fined because they had something like this on their site and Ticketmaster had another issue in the UK. So British Airways were fined about 200 and something million dollars for loss of data because they were liable and and they they were liable for loss of personal data and credit card information for shoppers on on their site for a while because some hacker managed to, to modify a script on their site that collected information. Ethically, I'm trying to think about it. Like, are they liable in your opinion or... There are regulations that are making them liable, and there are more and more regulations in more and more countries that are holding the services in charge and liable. And they need to prove that they did the minimal requirement or invested enough in preventing this kind of situation. Uh, If you're clearing credit cards on your site, you need to be PCI compliant. You need to apply certain security. You need to have certain security measures in place uh, to protect that. Uh, and if you're not, or if you're losing credit cards, then the, then the authority, again, it's not consumers that were suing them. It's the European Union that was suing them for that. And the risk is there is a CCPA, a standard in California that is basically forcing sites. If you're collecting, if, if you as a site are collecting personal information, sensitive information of your users, username, password, home address, preferences, social security number, what have you, then you are liable to apply the best in class measures to protect it, to protect this data. And if this data is breached, then you will pay by the amount of records that you breached and a minimum fine of X per user. And and with GDPR, it could be X percentage of your annual revenue. So, I mean, you want to put a fine so that people will take it seriously, uh, so that the data breaches that are happening so often on the internet will potentially cause less damage to users. But there's some sort of revolution going on in the past few years with respect to regulation and privacy protection uh, that I guess serves what you're trying to advance. And I'm trying to think you entered this stage before all this regulation started, right? So regulation is one scare tactic on the fine itself, but there is also reputation. If you know that a merchant that you're using is not diligent in storing, in safe securing your data and had a big data breach, your trust in this brand will decrease and you may decide not to shop on this site again. When Macy's had a mage card event, which is a, this kind of front end code that was injected and it was, they identified it within a week from it happening. When was this? I think two years ago about. Macy's had a, a breach that for a, about a week on their checkout, uh, there was a script that managed to get injected that collected users' credit cards. Again, for British Airways, for Ticketmaster, it ran for a few months and it took them 
also a long time to report it after they already found it in Pashit. Macy's were extremely responsible. They identified within a few days, they stopped it, they immediately announced it and, uh, and took actions. Their stock took a hit of, of about 10% when they announced because of the brand reputation, because not just because of the potential fine that they're going to get, but also because there's an impact. So customers care about it. Customers see the impact on their business. If you're not securing credit card, then you're, there are other business impacts re, regardless of regulations that are there. Regulations are also to protect privacy of the users and the governments are trying to do that to make sure that, that they're applying that. Yeah, GDPR, CCPA, and these things like this. But besides these regulations, I mean, it's, there is the, the immediate impact on the business. And for some of the cases, again, it's more of the risk and, and, and abuse of the, logic, of the logic. If I am not protecting my data and letting, and this is not about security, if I'm letting my competitors scrape my pricing information and they can outbid me on every search engine, then I'm going to lose money. Uh, and that's not about security. Uh, that's about just helping control my inventory and making sure that I'm in charge and, and controlling who has access to my data, uh, even though it is public. And it's, it's sort of funny. Think of uh, Amazon, Walmart, large retailers that are constantly trying to get the best price and, and, and charge that. There is no crime in, in trying to identify what is the price and what, what does every other competitor have in their inventory. And they want it to be as publicly available for the customers so that the customers can find it and buy it. But they, they want to make it harder for their competitors to get the entire database of, of, of things. They want to make it very easy for Google to scrape it so that when you're searching, you'll find the best price. Got it. You're obviously very confident in what you're offering. Yeah. And I'm trying to understand how you started. Like, who was your first customer and how did you feel? Was it scary at first? Yeah. Uh, so we, we had a lot of confidence in the architecture. We didn't know what would be the use case that will be sort of the tipping point. Yeah, the tipping point or the, the one that will make the most sense. Because when you're looking at the use case, we build the architecture. We build an initial product. Before we wrote our, the first line of code, we came with this concept. We, we mocked up. So it's not that we didn't write any line of code, but we did a basic mock-up to see that the concept makes sense. Then we started interviewed about, let's say, 50 potential customers, even before raising funds. People are extremely happy to talk when you're not trying to sell them a product. Once you move over and say, okay, now I have a product and I want you to buy it, they're more suspicious and, and care about their time. But I, I know for myself, I mean, if a founder calls and say, hey, I have an idea, I want to get your perspective on it, I'm happy, I'm always happy to share some time and provide feedback. So that's what you did. So that what we did. We, we used our network and it started with friends, started with previous customers that we knew and reached out to different people and asked friends of friends and, and got to all kinds of financial services, retailers, uh, large websites, just talking to them, asking for their time, sharing our thought, trying to listen to what are their, their problems and if they would have that, what will they try to solve with it? But that's a great tactic. And I think this also gets cognitive buying in a sense, because now that people have invested time in you and they've helped you, um, they're a lot more on board. And, and when you're going to come with the ask, probably chances are a lot more of those are going to now, quote unquote, convert, or maybe even not, quote unquote, it's actually what it is. More of them are going to now be your, your customers. Yeah, definitely. 
continued and into being design partners and sort of beta customers and converted customers. Some of them did not, uh, but but it definitely helped in establishing that and validating that for us, especially because our product is based on data. Uh, so uh, it's not something that I can build in the lab for work for two years and only then meet the first customers. So we got that, we got a strong validation and we got the, the main problem that they kept on saying that they would use it for was bot mitigation because that problem started happening there. There were a few vendors who were trying to solve that, but in a very different architecture by, by providing a box that you put in your data center, which is not very scalable or fun. Uh, and they had a lot of issues with it. So, so we decided for that to be the first product, and this is how we built it. Now, two months after we hired our first engineers, we already had a couple of design partners to run traffic on because the learning algorithms that are trying to identify anomalies and collect the information, you need actual traffic for that. So having customers was critical. Now, design partners, they're not paying, they're getting insights, so they're, some of them are happy to do that. This is the first I've heard of this term. You, you can think of it, sometimes it might be an existing partner from for a different product. So now we have some existing customer who are design partners for a new product. But the idea is the design partner, by definition, they know that they're helping you design a new product. So they're not expecting to get a fully baked, mature product. The benefit for them is they get early preview and the ability to influence on the product because the feedback that they are providing goes directly to the product and engineering team, and they're constantly trying to solve the problem for them. So they get the value. We get the value from having a a customer, uh, which is sort of the the dream for any product manager to have someone who constantly, the the customer sitting on a daily uh, channel with them, providing feedback and and telling them what they want. It's like a developer on uh, on an application. But it's amazing to actually have those people who are selling, you're going to sell to as those partners. Is that like a very common best practice? It is more common, yeah. Uh, it definitely in B2B. So you work with a few. Sometimes uh, they may pay or, or not. They may get promise of, okay, they get the service for free until the product is released. And then they may get a discount for the first year. I mean, you want to incentivize them on, on their investment. But the promise, and they know that, I mean, and, and they are motivated because they will do that not as a favor. I mean, if you're solving a problem that they care about, then A, you're starting to solve it for them early and they get a product that is designed almost tailored for them. Uh, so so it's great. So they're happy to pay for it over time. And this is fascinating to me because uh, your product is essentially not very human friendly. At the end of the day, it's all about bots and cyber. And yet you've established your entire business on relationships at the beginning through the POC, you didn't even really write code. And then through those design partners, it's always about the people that you work with, right? Yeah, I think B2B, uh, and this is what I like in, uh, or in, in, in B2B business versus B2C. Uh, it's, it's obviously my history and how I grew and what I, what I know, but when you're designing for consumers, you, in many cases, need to educate them. You can't just, uh, what is the problem that you have? In many cases, you're inventing a new product and trying to educate them on, on new things and get the, the, the market. Where with business to business, you're solving usually a problem that they have. They may not express it exactly. They may not know how to do that. You need to come with a innovative ways of doing that. But 
but you can really work with a partner from day one uh, and solve and, and just listen to your customers. You don't need millions of customers. You need tens or hundreds or thousands. You can work with them. You can establish a much more personal relationship with the people using the product. And if you're listening and, and doing what you're told, then it's you already have the way to success. It's also in many cases not a winner's take it all. So there won't be three Facebooks uh, because once the platform is is there, it's a winner takes it all. Uh, where in business to business, uh, you you can have more than one operating system. You can have uh, more. You have checkpoints in Palo Alto network and. Because also, even if it's just the nature of enterprise, they, they are bidding. They want to get three offers. So you need to have multiple vendors. And what about your, uh, your internal team? I mean, you're, how, many, how many are the team now? So the company is about 200 employees now. Wow. And so what was that like growing? It's fine. I mean, we, we, we didn't grow. It took us six years now to get to this number. But uh, the first year we were growing... Uh, what felt very rapidly, but again, to be 10, 15 employees and, uh, and, and more. But now that you're six years into this with 200 uh, team members, I'm sure you made a lot of mistakes. What would you advise scaling entrepreneurs? Uh, What's your favorite mistake? Favorite mistake. I think the, frame, the, the best advice that few people told me, and it's, it's easy to tell and it's always hard to practice. And it's easier also to observe as a bystander. So in that case, in many cases, uh, having people you trust that can watch and tell you that, but I think hire fast and fire fast or hire slow and fire fast, actually. Uh, I mean, the, the cost of hiring the wrong hire is very high for the organization because you're investing a lot of it. You're investing on boarding. Uh, so try to figure out as fast as possible and, and, and you'll still make mistakes. And when you feel it's wrong, then cut it off because it's very rarely that in many cases, the, the bad hires that we did, uh, in most cases, within a month or two, you already knew it. But it's very likely to say, okay, let's give that person a chance. Let's do that. And it's not, not necessarily because the person is not good. Sometimes it's just not a good fit for the organization and that person would be amazing in a different place. And lingering on that or stalling or trying to give another opportunity, maybe it will change. Or I really need someone now. So having someone that is 30% or 50% capacity is better than having no one. And it's never the case. Uh, everyone around sees that. It, it has a very negative impact on the, on the company and all the culture. And in case you're blind to that, this is where, because I know for me, it's very easy to see when, when a peer or, uh, or someone else is is struggling with letting go someone, someone or, or, or making this decision, you can be blind to that. So trust other people and, and, and build an environment where other people can tell you, hey, why are you stalling on that? How was the transition for you to become an entrepreneur in the business world as opposed to being the, you know, I, I, at that time, I don't know now, the Zionistic Intelligence Corp um, doing it for the greater good and doing it from the business side well, like, how is that transition and how does that affect like your day-to-day today? So I think there are people who did it better, so to speak. People who came right out of the military uh, as founders uh, to a big success or not, but I mean, had the confidence to start something coming into the business world where you, you have no experience. Again, you don't have really a real notion of customers and of competition and other things in the army of marketing of sales 
ROI. The budget is not really something that uh, you just ask for more. So, and, and, and the, the workforce is extremely cheap in the army. So, so I, I didn't become an entrepreneur the second I went, left the military service. I actually joined as an executive in two companies uh, until I felt confident. So I was a, sort of a late bloomer, so to speak, on, on, on the entrepreneurship. I always felt part of it because with Metacafe, I felt I'm part of the, uh, I, I'm, I'm part of the team and you feel the anxiety of, of building something and the stress of a startup, but it's, it's never the same when you are the founder. You can always walk if, if you're upset or if something doesn't go. And as a founder, it's harder to do that. So it took me some time to feel confident, to feel rounded enough doing engineering, product, working close with sales and marketing in the US to feel like, okay, now I feel like I can bring enough to a company uh, to, to found it. Other people are doing it on the run. What was like the biggest difference in working as a team in like intelligence corp or, or none? Um, hiring is always hard, even in the, again, you, are, you may have a supply of talented kids, but, but even there, I mean, even with the talented people, you need to fight for resources with other units. Uh, you need to identify and hire and train and build a culture because you can get the best engineer, but if you don't manage them right, if you don't build the right environment, set the right goals and motivate them, then you won't get good results. So I think in that sense, building a team is building a team. You're using maybe different uh, motivational factors into that and, and applying different is like curiosity. Are you solving a bigger problem? Are you going to be rich or are you going to, to save the world? But at the end of the day, people want, uh, besides the monitoring and all that aspects, I mean, as long as you're developed. I think the key for managers, for management and for employees satisfaction is you need to be clear on the goals. Uh, you need to make sure that they're feeling that they're constantly being developed and growing as, as people uh, by learning more skills and, and doing more things and getting visibility. And this is true in both ways. I mean, in the military and intelligence and other things, uh, part of the challenge is when people finish their uh mandatory duty how many of them will stay and this is even much harder because the salaries outside are much higher uh, so if you build the right team then people will stay for longer and, and contribute in the company it's the same thing i mean you need to motivate them your company has been identified and uh, you've been receiving credentials uh, and marked as very successful and on the path to exploding in a good way do you remember a specific moment in time when it sort of hit you, okay, this is real, this is happening? I mean, it's just a, an ongoing journey where every milestone, I mean, with a lot of up and downs. I mean, it's easy. Usually you talk about all the highs and all the, the accolades and the recognition, but, but being a founder, uh, you can have highs and lows in the same day and feel like, okay, I'm invincible or everything is going to crash. I think the, the, the longer you go, the more milestones you go through, you feel, okay, I feel comfortable that this is not going to disappear tomorrow, but but there is the constant stress of will I fulfill my my potential? Will I fulfill the growth? Will I will I be what what I promised? Am I am I doing what I can to my shareholders, to my employees that I'm feeling responsible to make sure that I'm 
providing the, the brightest future for them. I mean, it's, it, you're constantly in stress and you never feel comfortable. Like, okay, I made it. We're in a safe place. How do you navigate that stress? What do you tell yourself? It's not easy. <laughs> I mean, uh, every once in a while, it's good to reflect back and look at the things that you did do and look in the positive. It, it's, it's more about that. It's enjoying the moments where with, with the swings, with the accolades, with a major customer win, when you get uh, good recognition from a customer and hearing something that is good or an employee that is happy about how things are, are doing. And then going back to seeing all the problems and the on why things can go wrong uh, so that you can continue fixing them and growing further. Do you have some sort of daily habits or things that keep you on track? I'm trying to keep a fairly strict schedule. Uh, it was much easier in COVID because no travel and things like this. So starting every day with a workout, having lunch, dinners in fixed hours, uh, having meetings, uh, family times. So it's more making the cadence. And uh, one thing that I find is very helpful for focus. It's, again, not rocket science and many management books or time management are saying that, but ending every day and looking back at what I did from the things I was trying to achieve, taking a mental note or a physical note in a notebook on what what rolled out for the next day and, and, and identifying before tomorrow, like what are the things that I'm planning to do tomorrow? If it's meeting, customer meeting or if it's actual tasks, that helps me at least sleep better and not constantly being stressed about, oh, what do I need to do tomorrow? What did I miss today? Because if you're taking the few minutes to just summarize the day at the end of the day and, and reflect it in the morning when you wake up, it helps be more efficient for me. What do you see is your superpower? I really like to solve problems. Uh, like you're probably a very good partner. And that's a feeling. Like I, I can trust every word you're saying. Very grounded. Very. And, and on that side, by the way, the kryptonite would be? My kryptonite? There are many I'm trying to figure. Like uh, sometimes... Uh, in trying to solve problems and in, in getting analytical, uh, one thing is it's easy for me to get into an argument, not as in just fight or to get into the details too much. Uh, and I constantly re- trying to remind myself and my team and managers to to take this per- that perspective. And this is where I'm trying to put practices and and things in my day to help me do that, like the taking the notes at the end of the day. Because you can be extremely satisfied and I can be extremely satisfied by doing a lot of work that is very tactical because you supposedly achieve it. So I really like the details and sometimes I can lose the picture from the details. And this is something that I'm always concerned about. Interesting and, and not surprisingly very self-critical and aware. Uh, you have this, this, this then uh, going for you, which is great. And uh, you don't see it much with entrepreneurs who are in such a roller coaster. And so what's next in store for you, though? Where are you going to be in five years? Who do you want to be known as in five years? Yeah, I like that better. I mean, I like what I'm doing. I like being an entrepreneur. I like inspiring or, or driving directions for people. I like building new products. Uh, I want Premier X to be a public company or a large established company will have been Permitrex in five years or will Permitrex already be established and, and do something else properly. But I mean, I, I want to be known for that, for being a, an entrepreneur, for building stuff and making the world better. 
it seems like you're on the right path and that's fantastic to witness. Thanks. So thank you very much uh, for doing this interview. And I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that you did this interview and I didn't die. <laughs> for our listeners, tried this already and I got a, a random uh, allergic reaction, which yeah. you know how saved my life by yeah, telling me the ER. my head was round and I, I physically didn't know if I should say sorry for dying in the middle of the podcast or just, you know, <laughs> broom it away and say, okay, we're going to do it so-so. I'm happy to survive this one. Um, and we'll definitely see it in another five years. Like if you said IPO, like now I now that I'm getting to know you, it's going to be IPO and it's going to be better. So, you know, you should take it literally with this guy and uh, and uh, keep us cheap. Thank you. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you, Ido. Lots of luck. Real life. Superpowers. Superpowers.